0: Hello. After one week off, I, I talked to artists Chow and Lin today. Uh, they, they have a very interesting story, and I love talking to artists. Uh, they, they've been working on this project since 2010. It's called The Poverty Line. They went to 36 countries and territories. They bought food from, from local markets. They took portraits of the food on a local newspaper uh, that you know they they bought on the day of the shoot. The idea is to examine the choices that people make, uh, people who are living at the poverty line when it comes to food. It's fascinating. It is so fascinating. And they are really, really cool people. And I was so happy to be able to talk to them. Uh, they've, They've shown this project around the world in museums. But now the poverty line is out as a book. They're based here in Beijing. Uh, and, and I think our conversation goes to places that, you know, most of my episodes haven't gone to. Uh, we talk about poverty. We talk about poverty measurement. We talk about photography, obviously. And we talk about newspapers. <laughs> kind of regretted this a little bit afterward, but I, you know, I, 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 I think I said something about how newspapers are in a death spiral. Maybe that's a little bit too dramatic. I don't know. But, you know, it kind of seems that way. And, and by the way, I used to be a paperboy. And I love newspapers, uh, so, you know, doesn't it's not like it makes me happy to say that. Okay, so uh, usually when I interview authors, I ask for a copy of their book. They send me a PDF, which is fine. I mean, I read it on my iPad, and, and for most books, it's totally fine. Uh, when, when Chow and Lin came over, though, they brought a copy of their book so I could take a look at it. And, you know, I, I knew I wanted the book anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but wow, it was—it's—it's it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, you know, we talk about this in the podcast, but it's—it's it's like it's—it's it's way more than a coffee table book. Uh, as soon as it's available here in China, I, I'm definitely buying it. It's available pretty much everywhere else in the world. Definitely Europe and North America. I'm not sure about Australia, but if you're in Australia, just definitely take a look for it. Um, it should be in all the usual places. Yeah. So they came over to my home studio to talk, uh, which is great. It, but, you know, can I can I just talk about technical stuff for just just one second? I'm not going to bore you with it. But, uh, you know, it, it, OK, so whenever I I can, I, I want to have people over here to do um, to do an interview rather than do a remote interview. Remotes are great. I, I, I don't mind doing remotes at all. I, I, I actually kind of now that I've found a service that I like, I'll do remote interviews as much as I, you know, w- whenever I need to. But way better to have face-to-face meetings. And, and you know, we could talk about China's COVID zero policy. Uh, what can I say about that? Okay, well, we can, I'm not gonna talk about <laughs> China's COVID zero policy. Uh, but the fact is, Beijing is functionally COVID free. And I, I like the fact that that means I can talk to people. So I have a pretty good setup here for two people. I run everything through my little Focusrite like, output machine, and 95% of the time, that's that's all I need. Uh, but I'm not really set up for three people. So Chow and Lin came over, and, and I, I gave them the good mics. Obviously, I was going to give them the good mics, um, but I, I gave myself this you know, TASCAM microphone, which is this field microphone. Again, not going to get too geeky about this. So I've I've did this once in the past uh, when Steven Schwenker and Arthur Jones came over and like I I hated my audio so much that I I re-recorded all of my questions. (laughs) So, um, you know, if you uh, listen to that interview, you might I may have sounded kind of unnatural there. Maybe I sound unnatural all the time. I have no, I don't know, whatever. Like I I had re-recorded all my questions and and this time the audio wasn't that bad, but you know, it's not that great uh, either. I just couldn't, I just couldn't re-record it again. Uh, I don't think it's that bad, but you might notice it. Anyway, that's the longest preamble I've ever given. Uh, Let's get to the interview. Here is Stefan Chow and Huiyi Lin.
1: I think our motivation for the project um, really was was started from our own interest in understanding the issues around poverty and development. Uh, we come from Malaysia and Singapore, and um, I think as we were growing up, uh, I think we were fortunate um, that a lot of the environments and, and, and economic aspects of our countries, um, or at least uh, the parts that we were growing up in were rather developed in itself. But as we, um, as we as we grew up, as we also started traveling around to different countries, and uh, later we relocated to China, um, we also gained a lot more perspective into um, human development in its various forms. Uh, and And the speeds uh, and the social structures and divides um, which were in the communities uh, uh, you know in around where we were and and in the countries that we we visited uh, and lived in and I think there was always this interest in in understanding more and um, building up a sense of empathy uh to to really um, understand the issues from ground up. For myself, I was trained in economics. I was also a policy maker with um, the Ministry of Trade and Industry in Singapore, uh, and I always saw policy issues and um, and directives um, from a very top-down level. Uh, and for me, building up that ground-up view was very important uh, to be able to really understand the impact of what policies did to people on the ground and whether they made a difference or not. Um, so that that was my motivation. Stefan,
0: back in 2013, uh, you were asked how long you wanted to pursue the Poverty Line Project. And, and you said that you didn't want to put a, dead on, uh, put a deadline on it right now. With the release of the book, has
2: that deadline come? Certainly, I think the end of one chapter has, has come. Uh, I think when we created the book and when we put everything together, we were kind of very satisfied that it has reached a 10-year mark uh, in terms of the number of countries and uh, the amount of time that we have put into. Um, Will the project continue from here? Uh, Actually, the answer is yes, because um, for us, um, I think we're in for the long haul and um, the poverty line feels really not just um, a project of ours. It also feels like a child. And uh, as with the research and the work that accompanies it, uh, we actually see that um, as a 10-year project, it has a lot of meaning. As a 20-year project, I think uh, there's, there's even more context, there's even more uh, information uh, and depth in the work itself.
0: You started this in 2010, so that's 10 years ago. And some of the, the data is from 2010 or 2011. Uh, is there Are there any countries that you'd like to go back to and and um, sort of see what has changed?
1: Certainly. Well, for China itself, we actually have been tracking over the 10 years um, at different time periods. Uh, and China is at... A- Quite an exceptional case in the amount of poverty alleviation work that has been done uh, in the country to bring down poverty officially, um, but also the infrastructure that has been put in place um, in the alleviation measures uh, and policies. Uh, and we see, I mean, basically our visuals capture two angles of it. One is the definition of poverty in the monetary amount, which is, uh, which is used to define poverty. Second is the availability and prices of food. Uh, and these two variables have definitely changed over time for China. Uh, So besides China, which we have tracked longitudinally, we also do definitely want to look at other countries where there are uh, big changes in these two variables. So a, a number of developing countries that we have seen significant changes would be including India, uh, in the expectations of the government's uh, ability to help people in poverty um, and low-income groups. Um, also, we see definitely the South American countries in the amount of inflation that has hit the economies and people's livelihoods. Uh, certainly, these are two areas that are, or, or two um, examples of where we see um, big changes in these happening. So that's for the developing countries. In the developed countries, Uh, certainly uh, we see issues developing uh, from the Uh, as from the perspective of inequality um, being a bigger concern uh, for countries which are also seeing social and political issues um, um, coming out uh, and definitely with the COVID crisis also driving a lot of these messages more importantly across different income strata. Uh, So for developed countries I think it's a different angle that we would like to understand.
0: Until recently, the, uh, the Poverty Line was an installation in galleries around the world. Why did you decide to adapt it as a book?
2: I think for us, um, when we created the work, we always wanted it to be seen in a physical way. And initially, I think our knowledge was limited to doing exhibitions. Um, when we created the work, I always told Lin that um, I want this to be seen in a museum. Um, I want people to be able to walk up, um, see the work, and somehow in that moment, uh, also reflect back on their own worldview. I think that was how we wanted to design um, the experience itself. And as we went around doing our work, we also got ourselves more educated within how art and photography is experienced and consumed. And we realized that the book is actually a very integral part of that experience as well, because you don't have to go to a space to experience that, but uh, you could actually flip a book um, to to look at what um, the artists uh, have to say. And to be honest, um, very early on when we think about photography books, we often think about very coffee table books, um, books that just show the work itself, um, but with very little context, very little explanation. And Lin, being an economist, um, she actually minded that the work is could be shown without context, without explanation. And this was a big concern on our part. And I think it was only much later when we met designers that really took care of um, that part of this whole presentation of information as well as the visual um, assets that we felt that we really had a book that was able to not just match but also um, become a a, a a platform for anyone to actually experience the vision that we are trying to create uh, all this well
0: okay, so so walk me through some of the decisions that you had to make when you were making this adaptation. like what like was was there anything that you had to leave behind that that is in the ga- it was was in the gallery? Is there anything that you added?
2: One of the things that we had to leave behind was uh, not being able to show every single work that we have photographed. Uh, we have photographed 36 countries and territories, and we were not able to um, put that in, in in every single page because otherwise the book becomes a 1,000 pages uh, thick um, and more. And so I think that was one of the decisions that we had to make. But at the same time with the designers, um, they are real professionals. They are they are really uh, passionate about what they do. Um, it's actually a duo. It's husband and wife. They are actually a Dutch couple. Uh, and their are, they are studio uh, hails from Amsterdam. And we actually took a book workshop uh, with them in Tokyo. And uh, so their names are Toon van Heiden and Sandra van Doolen. And they are extremely uh, competent, passionate about uh, the photography book itself. And Toon himself has talked about how when he creates a book, he wants the viewer to be an active viewer. So as he flips the book, he also wants the viewer to be part of the experience itself, uh, not to leave everything out there as an explanation of what this is about, but also to explore, to, to flip through, to, to look at the little things that um, we have inserted into the design of the book that creates an inter- interactive experience. And um, so, so when he saw our work, um, very naively, I think at the beginning of it, we said, oh, you actually want the book to be thin enough to be 100 pages thick, and that's about it. And when he saw the work spread out uh, during the workshop itself, we um, have shot about 1,800 images up to that point. Um, he said to us, it's like, there's no way I can make this into a small book. I can make it into a very interesting and beautiful book. And uh, I think that that was what happened. The, the book came about because um, we did the workshop with um, our two uh, very nice uh, Dutch designers in Tokyo uh, with a very good friend of ours as well. And we made it as a book dummy. So the book dummy was actually just about two chapters deep. I had to hand-sew, hand-print, and basically make a dummy book itself. We submitted it to a few contests, and none of the contests actually replied, and we did not get into the shortlist. And then a good friend of ours, who is um, a festival organizer, a curator... And she recommended that we submit this to um, a big book prize in Southern France. Um, It's the OWL Festival, and it's sponsored by the Luma Foundation. Um, And it is the biggest prize out there. And at first, we thought, well, there's no way we could uh, get anything out of this. But sure, we sent our book dummy in, and we won. So this was back in 2019. And it really gave the work a breath of fresh air because, to be honest, when you are creating a work that started 10 years ago and you're just going on, at some point, you kind of wonder to yourself, when will this be over, you know? Is this something I show my children when I grow old or do I just show my friends every time they come for dinner and you say, hey, this is this one project that I've been doing? Uh, that, that win really propelled us to a different level because suddenly curators, museums uh, started setting up and realizing that, wow, there is some brilliance to this. And, and And so I think we are very, very grateful for that. And the book was meant to be published in 2020. And of course, we know that all plans were canceled. Yeah. And in our case, we were more blessed that it wasn't canceled, it was just postponed. So, um, so 2021, we got our book published by, in two versions, uh, one in French by, uh, publisher Actorsuit, which is highly regarded in France itself. And, um, and then in English by Lars Muller, a Swiss, um, publisher. And so, um, both publishers are highly esteemed, highly regarded. And to be honest, I think if we did not win this prize, I don't think we will get that high and that far. So, um, so, so, so I think it really gave um, this book a very good ending to this chapter, and it will still continue.
0: So, so you have the book here, and I'm looking at it right now, and I th- think you've succeeded. I think it, it is an absolute. It's a gorgeous book, unusually, and I think quite rightly you've used newsprint, or it's sort of. It's not newsprint. It's it feels like newsprint when I when I flip through it, but it's not that. Why do you use that type of paper?
2: I think the whole idea of um, of the work itself um, because it, it it does talk about poverty and 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 how we came out with a visual like this was was kind of interesting as well we we um, we, we, we kind of landed upon the fact that um, when we talk about poverty, let's talk about food. And um, food quantities is actually one of the things that um, people living at the poverty line would have on a daily basis. And this is not just restricted to people who are poor. This is also uh, common to anyone who is living at any society strata because uh, you could be a billionaire or you could be living at the poverty line. If you are alive, every day you think about food. Um, That is actually what you need. And so this is actually a very universal um, need that every human has. And when we placed it on newspapers, um, it actually reminded us of our own childhood, our own background. We grew up in Singapore and Malaysia. And it's actually quite common uh, when we accompanied our mothers to the markets that when she buys vegetables, um, the the market seller would actually wrap the vegetables in newspapers, tie it on a string and Pass it back to us. I remember eating uh, fried noodles on a packet um, that is um, put on a translucent piece of plastic, and underneath it is newspapers. And we are always, uh, I, I get very excited when the newspapers fall out to be part of the comics uh, because then you get to read the yeah. comics <laughs> while you get to eat your breakfast at the same time. <laughs> And so I think there's something familiar with it. I'm not sure if this is universal where where, uh, all parts of the world has this as well. The only thing I can...
0: I mean, I'm not British, but of course, fish and chips is always wrapped
2: in newsprint, right? Yes, yes, yes. These are two items that are universal to almost anywhere in the world, Um, food and newspapers. And so I think for us, when we wanted to create the book, we also wanted the tactile feel of the book itself to feel... Like newspaper print. Uh, We actually wanted to experience if this was actually possible with actual newspaper print, but the designers told us is that this would not be durable enough. And as I was flipping
0: through it, I was almost... I'm almost... Expected to have you know the newsprint sort of rub off on my fingers, you know, which which and of course smell. is not going to happen. And the smell, yeah, exactly. yeah,
2: So you cannot imagine how much discussion. Uh, in fact, some of the discussions became a bit heated uh, between um, us, the designers, the publishers, and the printers, because everyone was trying to to do something that was within their 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 expertise and their comfort level. And I think the work itself made everyone felt creative but uncomfortable at the same time. So um so so it's incredible because everyone was so passionate. Our designers were in Amsterdam, our printer was in Italy, our publishers were in France and Switzerland and we were here in Beijing. And so we were having this discussion uh at different time zones and I think at the end of it I look at Lynn and I said, I really appreciate the, the 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 amount of thinking and decision making. Uh, that's put into this. And I think the end result is something that everyone just simply loved.
0: So you started this project in 2010 at a time when the newspaper industry was already in its death spiral, uh, at least in the US and, and in Canada. I, I can't speak to the rest of the world. And maybe it's because I live in Beijing and I don't have access to the newspapers I grew up reading. Um, but I haven't read a newspaper or at least a newspaper on paper for you know a long time. I don't know. Like I don't know I don't know what the question is. Like is that is that something that you, you, you does that does that resonate with you at all or is that is that am I completely sort of
2: No, I think I think I think for me as well um I actually came from a background of photojournalism. So I used to work for the newspapers. And so I have my roots in news journalism in the hard copy version and certainly felt very strongly about what journalism is, which is well in print rather than uh, something you swipe on your phone itself. And so when we did the project uh, back in 2010, to be honest, I expected newspapers to be around for a long, long time. Um, there, was no, there was no doubt in my mind that we could do this for quite a while. And within a short period of 10 years, um, people from different parts of the world have told us that some of the newspapers that we covered are already gone. Some of the newspapers that we have used have definitely thinned tremendously. Uh, I remember we photographed uh, the poverty line in the US um, twice over a period of about eight years and New York Times itself became a lot thinner and not just thinner, it also shrunk in size because I think I remembered somewhere there was this debate about uh, what is the appropriate size of a newspaper to be seen on a subway when you flip open the the, the newspaper itself. So uh, remarkably, um, newspapers around the world started shrinking in physical size as well. And so because we uh, use a set measurement when we photograph the food on the newspapers itself, um, the recent newspapers could barely cover the ground that we wanted to photograph because the newspapers have shrunk. And and this was never in our calculation, you know. Like uh, to the point where 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 we were starting, uh, we were started to to wonder if there comes a point where we actually need to photograph food on a screen because newspapers have disappeared to that point. And 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 honestly, won't be as nice. But it's it's inevitable because um, if newspapers have all shrunk to. Paperback size. Then what what happens?
0: So if you were to start, have started this project in twenty twenty, how would you? I mean, would, would you have made the same decision to go with newspapers? How would you have? How, how would you have done it?
1: I think newspapers, it, it, they they still have a certain quality for us um, in a way of seeing the world. It may not, it may not be in the next generation's um, experience, but it certainly is in ours. Uh, I think the 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 usage of the newspapers um, adds a certain breath um, to understanding the context in which uh, the time and place that um, the photographs were taken and the capture of the issues at that point of time. Um, if we were not to use the newspapers, I think it loses, or you know, or we need to replace with something else that is able to give that context. The other thing is also you know newspapers in itself kind of captures the spirit of the work um, it, it gives a very ironic um, background um, to showing something which you know why you know earlier when when, when stefan mentioned that in when we were growing up um, newspapers were very much often used as packaging uh, because after the day after the newspapers are released it loses its value there's no more value in that piece of paper which was printed anymore. On the day that it was printed, in the day that it's sold on the stands, there is value, but the day after, there's no more value. Right? And, and you think about that sense of value of information, of, of, um, you know, of, of whatever words were written and, and whatever photos and pictures, there is a, a very ironic contrast in the physicality of the food that is placed on it. Uh, and to what extent uh are policies are information valuable if you really, if it doesn't make that impact uh, and that physical influence uh to people's lives so i think it it does have different meanings it brings different meanings into a project like this
0: anyway the, the first thing that i that i noticed really from your book is that poverty means different things from country to country. So you look at income and, and the food that income can buy, which is obviously the most fundamental need there is. But there's a whole galaxy of other needs. You mentioned, for example, fuel costs in the UK, right? Uh, so fuel poverty in the UK, meaning not, enough, not having enough money to heat your home during uh, cold months. But in tropical countries or in warm weather countries, that need doesn't exist. So that specific kind of poverty doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, two, two of your contributors talk about this, uh, John Micklewright and Andrea Brandolini. They wonder whether we need to broaden the definition of poverty from a focus on just household income to other kinds of deprivation as well, uh, the multidimensional measures. So why why do different countries use different ways to measure poverty and, and why does that matter?
1: Um, yeah so we when, when we embarked on this um, project we ourselves um, started learning more about how poverty is defined uh, what are the different measures um, and, and how does it impact the policies around poverty alleviation uh, and what it means for the country and communities um, So we discovered uh, one, one key learning for us was that um, poverty that Two broad ways of defining poverty. One is by absolute means, which means that an absolute poverty line really, defi- um, really is dependent on what is the survivability level, uh, and you want to have a basic number of calories per day that you want to fulfill uh, in, calo- in in in. You know, uh, with a local uh, diet. And so basically like 2,400 calories a day, which uh, would be able to um, let a grown man survive on uh, and how much money it would take to form the local diet, uh, which would feed that 2,400 for- 2, calories a day. And from there, then we that's a food budget component and you add in a bit more for the non-food budget component. Uh, and that's basically what we term as the absolute poverty line. Um, but in a lot of developed countries and um, economies, uh, we're looking more as a relative measure of um, of the social distance uh, within a community, of within a population. And so we're looking at relative poverty. For example, a lot of EU countries take the average median income Uh, level of the whole population, and they multiply it by 50% or 60%, and that is the poverty line. So it measures um, a a social distance of the low-income group uh, to ensure that the low-income population does not um, stray too far away from the average income population. Um, So that is really a difference in the political ideology. It's also a difference in the level of resources that countries have um, for societal uh, development. Uh, And and this was one big learning for us. Um, Another big learning for us um, from the economics um, point of view... Uh, was really a, uh, a very important piece of work um, that that inspired us uh, to to develop this project. Um, was a piece of work called Poor Economics. It's a book uh, written by two MIT professors, Professor Abhijit Banerjee and Professor Esther Duflo, who are uh, Nobel laureates. Uh, and in this book called Poor Economics, which they did over uh, from based on research findings in in many developing countries and poor communities, um, was to understand the psyche of decision. Making for poor individuals and households, uh, and how how decisions were being made, what were the constraints faced, uh, and therefore how could policy measures help poor communities and individuals and households? Um, and and one thing, one one big learning point for us, which we tried to build into our project, was also that. Um, Poor people are facing choices on a daily basis. That becomes a very big constraint uh, on their mental capabilities um, to make good decisions. But it also, at some points of time, um, gives them um, certain, uh, makes allows them to make certain choices which to us may not seem very rational. Uh, for example, if they have a bit more money for a day, they may not choose to buy more calories, they may not choose to buy more noodles, more basic calories, but they may choose to have a better treat for their children, have some snacks, have some sweets, uh, have better proteins, have a bit of fish or a bit of meat. Um, and, and this to them is is, is part of the, the building up of, of daily choices. Although limited at a very basic level. Uh, and and we wanted to show the diversity um, of food choices. Uh, and therefore, we do not constrain ourselves to what we assume to be um, the choices that poor people can or should make. Uh, and therefore, when we did our project, um, we really built a whole food basket uh, with different food groups, uh, covering carbohydrates, um, proteins, um, fruits and vegetables, and even snacks, and and so this really forms the diversity of food choices, which seem to be available, but really may not be affordable if you consider all the constraints that um, poor people have to go through. Uh, given that the the items that we place in front of, of people are really things that every th- you know, everybody can associate with. I think we we start from a common point of of association. We start from a common point of of building up um, uh, understanding, and and from there, we do hope that it becomes a more open conversation of realizing that it's you know it's people around us, uh, and and whether it's defined as such or or it's really people that we care about um, who have you know temporarily um, fallen into poorer circumstances. Um, and whether it's a structural, long-term issue which happens, uh, I think these are things which, which we need to be more aware of and more sensitive to. Uh, certainly, a lot of poverty is hidden, right? Especially in rural pop- uh, Sorry, urban poverty. Uh, the working poor, people who are taking a maybe working a, a job um, which is a gig in, in a gig economy. Uh, the stability is not there one day you may be doing a job the second day it might not be there uh, social protection for people who are in such positions so it's not just the people who are homeless it's not the only people who are old and without pensions um, but certainly even educated uh, can fall into poverty situations. And I think we just need to open up the conversations to understand what are the structural issues uh, and what also the community issues and, and, and the way that we can, we can really um, seek to close up um, the gaps in, in our communities.
0: In the book you write that you bought all the food you photographed at local markets and the prices you use reflect those market prices. But if you're poor, you're often paying more than those prices. Um, The Philippines um, is not a country that you feature in the book, but it's a country I know a little bit. And in Manila, where I used to live, uh, there's a Costco. So this is a massive store uh, where you save a lot of money because you're essentially buying in bulk. But there are barriers uh, to buying from there. You need to buy a membership and you need to pay more upfront to take advantage of lower prices. And you need to be able to afford the time, uh, the time to travel to the stores and to spend time there. So, so that option exists for people who are not living in poverty. But a lot of people who are living day to day, living hand to mouth, can only afford to buy small daily amounts from what's called sorry, sorry stores, and and. And that significantly increases the price uh, of goods they bought. So, so say you're in the US, right? Um, if your best option is to buy food at a convenience store, the cost of two bananas is going to be a lot more than if you go to the supermarket. So, so when you say you went to local markets to buy food, like, w- what does that mean?
2: I think the observation that you've made is, um, is, is certainly something we experience on the ground as well. Um, there were some countries... Uh, especially the developed countries where hypermarkets were actually not very far away from um, the city itself assuming that of course poor people also live in the cities and I think it's also due to the um, availability of infrastructure uh, that things are relatively accessible Um, so I remember we went to different parts of Europe and we were able to get uh, discount shops uh, relatively easy within the city limits itself but when we went to developing countries and this was uh, what was most jarring for us was Brazil I was in Rio uh, De Janeiro and um, we wanted to buy food items at the poverty line and I noticed that we um, the surest way to buy those food items were to be go to the favelas itself so I went to the favelas, I went to the local mini shop, uh, the mini uh, grocery shop, and I realized a few things. Number one, the variety of food items was very minimal. Number two, the prices were inflated. And I asked the local why, and the local said that, well, um, first of all, um, local logistics to, um, to, to, to send um, items from one place to another is expensive. And two, many shops in favelas in order to operate have to pay protection money to the gangs that operate there. So I wanted to take a bus to a uh, hypermarket that is a 45-minute bus ride away from um, the city centre itself. And so we took the bus and it was ironic that the bus fare itself is the price of a poverty line's worth of food for a Brazilian and once you're at the hypermarket, yes, you can find food items relatively cheap. And what th- and, and I guess this is what we also realize for, for food choices, um, is that not every country allows you to buy food in minimum quantities. Um, I was in Ethiopia where uh, you couldn't just buy 200 grams of chicken. You have to buy a live chicken, kill it, and they weigh the whole chicken before they kill it and that is in the number uh, that is in the amount of dollars so, so in a country like Ethiopia you're just not able to buy food at minimum quantities uh, in countries like uh, China or even Singapore or Malaysia yes you could go to a hypermarket weigh everything down to the lowest cent and you could pay for that if you want but we realize this is certainly not equal and um, certainly, the, for, for the poor, they are often at a disadvantage because um, even in America, when we bought foodstuff, we realized that what was available to uh, people at the poverty line is often supermarkets with highly processed food items as choices. To buy fresh foods, to buy foods that we see on a regular basis in Asia, for example, um, those come at a premium. So so we realized very quickly that um, food that is available to the poor varies a lot uh, between developing developed countries and the challenges are different. But uh, certainly for someone who's poor, you don't get the best end of the stick uh, most of the time.
0: Okay, that was Stefan Chow and Hui Yilin. Thank you so much for coming over. The book, The Poverty Line, should be coming to China very soon. It's available in Europe and North America now. Check your bookstores. I promise you it is worth it. Um, I promised an interview with a couple of executives from Ogilvy. We we talked a couple of weeks ago, and I meant to put it up last week. I listened to the interview again, and I thought I could add something to it. So uh, that might take a bit more time. Next week, though, I should have a conversation with Li Huihan. He is the founder and CEO of My China Roots. So, uh, watch for that. I will talk to you very soon.